0: We are in our series entitled The Upside-Down Kingdom, and we've moved into this new section of this Sermon on the Mount called Kingdom Actions. Uh, we finished up, uh, or we, you know, we just finished uh, on Kingdom Attitudes, but now we're looking at actions because we were looking at the beautiful attitudes. We've moved on into this next section in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're talking about salt and light. Um, and what's amazing to me about this passage is I was reading about it. I was reminded of a situation that I faced la- uh, a couple weeks ago where we needed someone that needed housing, and uh, they needed a hotel room for a couple nights. And so I was thinking about mo- hotel rooms, and, and I, I, you, you think of advertisements when, when you think of stuff like that. And when you think of the Motel 6, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Tom Baudette and what? We'll leave the light on for you. And I thought of that when I'm driving down the... You ever gone on vacation when you're driving with your family and you're, you're like, I need something now. Because the kids won't stop talking. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And, and you've been driving for a long time. You have to go to the bathroom because it always happens at that moment in time. And you're, you're driving along and you're like, I need a hotel. It's late. We've been driving forever. And I see Motel 6 and I think you'll, they'll leave a light on for you. And, and I think about being welcome. I mean, if you have someone that's a guest at your house and it's getting dark late at night and you're coming to your front porch, what do you do? Flip on the, the porch light, right? Because you want them to feel welcome, you want them to feel safe, you want them to be protected. And I think about what God has done through His Word and His people that He has left His light on because, see, he's, he's gone to heaven and He's going to return again, but since, since, now that He's gone, He's left the light on through His people. So other people might see who Christ is and feel welcome into His kingdom and in His presence. See today we're going to be talking about being salt and light. That God has left the light on, left us to be lights in the midst of a dark place so that people might understand who he is. But what does that look like? What does it mean to be salt and light? What does it mean to be salt and light at your workplace? Or at AU because we have many AU students here. What's it look like to be salt and light in your dorm room? Or in your in your in the cafeteria or at work in your workspace? What's it look like to be salt and light to your neighbors? When you get ready to go to work and you walk out of the car in the morning and you see your neighbor out there smoking a cigarette with the dogs, how are you salt and light at that moment in time? What's that look like? That's what we're going to learn about today, how to be salt and light. That's what God wants us to be. We all know our weaknesses, we all know our failures, and we all know our fears. But we, we want to know, how can we be the salt and light that God desires that we be? That's what we're going to learn about and look at today. But before we go any further, let's pause, ask for God's blessing on our message time. Father, we come into your presence asking you to perform spiritual heart surgery. Open us up. Direct our hearts. Show us how we are to be salt and light in the midst of the world that we inhabit Lord, convict us of sin. Help us to turn away so that we might let our light shine. But Lord, show us how we can reach our friends, our family, and our neighbors. Lord, even as many of us are going home or we're going to be with family and friends for Thanksgiving, help us to to be salt and light around the table when the football game is on or when we're eating, when we're having conversation or we're playing board games or whatever we're doing. Lord, help us to be salt and light. Prepare us. Lord, we know that you've left your light on for those that are lost in and through us. May we glow brightly for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's jump right into our passage in Matthew chapter 5. We see there when Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth, but, we're in verse 13, Matthew 5, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it be, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now, if we're going to understand what it means to be salt and light in the midst of our world, we have to, first of all, understand the metaphor understand the metaphor. That's number one in your notes. We need to understand this metaphor that Jesus has given unto us, that we know how to apply it to our life. Now, the first part of the metaphor is obviously salt. You are the salt of the earth. Now, we all have used salt. Some people like to use more. I mean, I think about salt. I think of salt deposits. I think of the the roads freezing and salt going down or putting it on my walkway so no one trips. And I think about a little salt on my food. and, And But that's all I really think about with salt. Now, we are in a very modern society where we have refrigeration. We have many different uh, modern appliances and and things that we can use that we don't need salt as much. But in the ancient world, salt was a necessity. It was hugely uh, used and sought after and valuable. Matter of fact, it's one of the most precious natural compounds known to man. Being, quote, the salt of the earth, like we've already talked about, or being worth one salt. Ever heard that expression? He's not worth his salt. Has long been a compliment, or his worth his salt. The very word salt comes from the Latin word for salary. Because when people were literally paid in salt, people were paid in salt. It was so essential. I mean, they, the coins were valuable, but salt you could use every day. It was used as preserving meat, uh, keeping bacteria from growing on cured meats and cheeses, and what many of the ancients didn't realize is how essential salt was uh, and is for life. You know, salt is required for blood, sweat, digestive juices, and efficient nerve transmission. In in fact, a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association indicated that populations with the lowest salt intakes also have among the shortest lifespans. So that doesn't mean just keep pouring on the salt, by the way. Okay, that doesn't mean that, because too much salt can be bad, too. But we see that salt is essential. It's valuable to our existence. We need to understand when Jesus says that we are salt of the earth, what does that mean? Well, first of all, we have to understand that salt functions as a preservative. It's a preservative, and so, too, are we preservatives in our culture, See in the ancient world, God even required the Israelites to season their sacrifices with salt. In the book of Numbers eighteen nineteen, a matter of fact, it shows that, that it was to be a preservative and to uh, be permanent. God through David promises him a covenant of salt in Second Chronicles chapter thirteen verse five. So the the, the significance of salt, maybe its qualities as a lasting preservative, well known throughout the ancient Near East. And it's used as for seasoning of food, but it's also to show permanence and preservation. So it functions as a preservative. Now, we see this uh, ourselves functioning in the role of being a preservative of our culture. Now, what do I mean by that? How can we be preservative in our culture? God, through you, he's placed his Holy Spirit in you to be salt. Now, what does that mean? It means that people are blessed through you And it means that you, because of your relationship with Christ, will bless other people and they will be under the umbrella of your blessing. Now, we see this in the book of Genesis chapter 18. When God is getting ready to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, he's he's heard about their sin, it has gone to his ears, and he shows up. And near Sodom and Gomorrah, in that region, lived Abraham. And God comes with two angels. It's a picture of a pre-incarnate Christ. Abraham receives three visitors. And these visitors show up, and Abraham recognizes that one of them is God. And God says to him, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And he says that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was sexual immorality and hospitality, they didn't show hospitality, and they were guilty of of, of sexual immorality, that God, it was so bad that God was bringing judgment on the people. And he tells Abraham this. Now, Abraham normally would be like, fine, fry him. But he doesn't. Why? Because his nephew lived there. Now, his nephew wasn't a participant in this sin, but it still bothered him that one of his family members was going to be destroyed. So he takes it upon himself to talk to God and, in essence, try to convince him not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So he says to God, God... If there are 50 righteous people there, will you destroy the city? He goes, for the sake of 50, I won't destroy it. Meaning that these 50 people will preserve the rest of them. I won't bring judgment on them because the 50 that are there, they're acting as preservatives. And then Abraham goes, well, can I talk to you just another time? What about if it's 45? God goes, for the sake of 45, I won't destroy it. He goes, well, how about 40? He says, for the sake of 40, I won't destroy it says God don't don't kill me what about for 30 for the sake of 30 I won't destroy it Lord I know I am but dust what about for the sake of 20 for the sake of 20 righteous persons in the city I will not destroy it Lord one more time what about 10 for the sake of 10 I won't destroy the city 10 are enough to season and preserve the people but what, what happened? There weren't ten people. There weren't ten righteous people that were there. So judgment came upon them. Lot came out with his family, his two daughters, his wife. His wife turned back, which also shows that we're not to turn back to our life of sin because when she did, she turned to a pillar of salt. Salt. We're to leave that life behind when we come out of it, not to go back into it. But see, salt acts as a preservative. And we, too, act as a preservative in our culture. Do you wonder why God hasn't brought judgment on the United States of America? Could it be that of the church and people that are holding on to righteousness? We do act as a preservative. Matter of fact, we see this in Ezekiel chapter 14 when God says of the, of the city of Jerusalem where he says, even if Daniel, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would only save themselves because of their righteousness and not anyone else. Because they were preservatives. He was showing how great they were, that they were preserving judgment from coming on the culture. But he's saying, they're so bad, not even those guys could stop it. But see, we act as preservatives in in our world. We also act as purifiers. Purifiers. That's what salt does. It purifies things. Now, If you put salt on an open wound, it hurts. It burns, but it cleans out the wound. It purifies it. And so, too, do we help purify those around us. I like to look at the example of William Wilberforce. Here's a man that saw injustice where he saw slavery. He spoke out against it, and he helped fight to eradicate it, and that helped purify and reach other different people. So we, too, do that as well. When we stand for what is right and we stand for what is wrong, though the world may go against us, that we know that it will use us to help purify the culture. Even your presence at your workplace does that. When, when, when you stand up for what is right, people then know that there's a standard, and either they will shy away from you, they won't speak evil, or they'll watch their mouth when they're around you. Have you ever had that? You ever had someone in your family? My grandfather was a pastor, and I, when my family would come into his presence, they watched what they said. And what they did, why? Because he was a purifier. And it caused them to be aware that they were doing something wrong. See, that's what we do. When God says that we're salt, What we are a light to other people. And then people see if they're doing right or wrong when they're in our presence. So we see that salt then acts as a purifier. You see this with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, where God says, seek the welfare of the city. Now, Israel is in exile in Babylon right now. And he's saying that they, by their presence and seeking good for the people of Babylon, they themselves are purifying and help purifying these people. That's what this passage is partially about. But seek the welfare of the city of Babylon, where I have sent you into exile, and pray for the, to the Lord on its behalf, for in its where, welfare you will find your welfare. Now, we have an, a New Testament example of this as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 through 16. Now, here's what's going on in this passage. You have an unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse. They are unequally yoked in the marriage. Now, God says to them, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Don't divorce your wife if she's an unbeliever if she wants to stay with you. He says that if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife. She is, in essence, purifying. She is, in essence, by her relationship with God, and she is the believing. He is blessed because of her. So she shouldn't leave. And he, he goes on. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. If he doesn't want to stay in the marriage, the unbeliever wants to leave, you can let him leave. You don't leave if you're the believer. You let them go if they don't want to be married to you anymore. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. In essence, though, by your relationship with God, your children are blessed, and your unbelieving spouse is blessed, and you're helping purify them because you're bringing them through, hopefully, to the saving knowledge of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean you go out and marry an unbeliever. The scripture says don't do that. This is for those who get saved when they're married. Okay? So we see, though, that this greater concept of principle, though, is that we purify and help purify those around us. Now, salt also not only acts as a preservative and a purifier, but a palate enhancer. A palate enhancer. You ever had something that was really dry? You ever had dry meat? What do you put on it? Salt, gravy, something. Okay? Some of you are going to be doing that. Some of you are going to make some turkeys, and it's going to be pretty bad. All right? And you're going to put something on it, like, pass the salt. Oh, it's really good. Yeah, it's really good. (laughs) Because we do those things. It, It acts as a palate enhancer. Now, it acts as a palate enhancer in two different ways. First of all, salt helps with taste. That's not in your notes, but it helps with taste. Does it not? It helps enhance the flavor uh, that's there. So do we. We help this. We help enhance taste. But salt also enhances our palate in that it brings on thirst. Ever you've seen it or, or places like a pub or something like that? Not to say you're going to a pub, but uh, you see peanuts on the counter, right? Why do they put peanuts on the counter? So it makes you drink. They know that. They're not stupid. But see, God has made us to be salt because it makes other people thirsty to hear who God is. It makes them want to taste and see that God, the Lord, is God. See, that's why it means when he says we are a palate enhancer. We're to help people thirst for God and want to taste and see the Lord is God. Now, the second metaphor that Jesus employs is that of light. Light. Now light is found throughout Scripture numerous times representing different things. We know in Scripture that God is light, first John one five. And in John eight twelve that Jesus is described as the light of the world. Light is also representative of knowledge, especially the knowledge of Christ, and that when we before we come to know Christ, the Scripture says that we are walking in darkness. Now Christ came to light up the darkness. And a truth that Matthew emphasizes at the beginning of his gospel, that a light came into the world. And we know that through Scripture that light represents God, His Messiah, His people, the law, the temple of Jerusalem, and the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's some 80-some references of light within Scripture. Now, as f- His followers, according to our passage for today, in Greek we are the phostos uh, to Which means that by our association with him, we are now the light of the world. So Jesus, in essence, lights us up to be lights in the midst of dark places. And we are to shine, help shine brightly. Now I want to talk a few moments and spend a little bit talking about what light is and what light does. First of all, light gives perspective. Perspective. You want to know how bad the room is? What do you do? Flip on the light. We 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 get perspective. We can see things when the light is on. When we can't, uh, we don't know what, what what's going on. Light gives perspective. So too do we, by our relationship with God, that other people we we shine the light wherever we go, and we're to give other people perspective on their relationship with God and who God is. So it gives perspective. We see this in the Book of Ephesians, chapter five, verse eight through fourteen. As the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, speaks to the church at Ephesus and says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Because if something's going on in darkness, when you turn it on, you can see what it really is. See, Satan tries to keep us in darkness because we don't realize how bad sin really is. That's, that's, what he, that's why he likes us to stay in darkness and blind us. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything's exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Because it brings perspective. When the light of Christ comes into our life, we can see things. We can see how we wasted our life in sin. And we can see what sin really is in all of its disgustingness. We see the reality of what it is when the light of Christ comes into us. And when we go into others' lives, that's what we do. We help show them what sin is. So we need to understand that light gives perspective. Light gives perspective. Light also gives protection. Protection. How do you keep burglars away? Flip on the light, right? I like to have my back porch light floodlight on. That keeps things away. You know, it's interesting that the Bible talks about this too. Look at this John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness. People love sin. People do. You can always find a crowd when there's sin involved. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. What do burglars not light? I mean, when an alarm goes off in a house and the lights go on, what do the burglars do? Run away. Because they've been exposed. They've been exposed. See, that's what light does to us. It exposes us for who we are and how bankrupt we are. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, light brings protection. It brings protection. And it also brings power. It brings power. Now, I'm pretty sure that the ancient doesn't know about, about solar power, but it does give us power in that it gives us the perspective, enables us to see and walk clearly. For example... After my son has been playing with Legos in my living room and I am walking downstairs to go get a drink of water in the middle of the night and I step on a Lego, I'm going to be very careful where I step after I wake up the entire house because I was yelling so loud. I am going to turn on the light so I can see. Then I feel safe and I feel power. I have control over my environment now. I can see what's going on. See, when the light of Christ comes into us, we know where we should walk, we know what we should do, we know what pitfalls to avoid. That's power. It gives us power. So we need to make sure that we we understand that. I mean, the scripture talks about this in, in John chapter 1, verse 4 through 9. In him was life. That's referring to Jesus. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God his name was John. He's talking about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, that came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone. That's power. He's, he's bringing light to everyone, was coming into the world. So light gives power. Light also gives peace. Does darkness penetrate light? When you open up the closet, does darkness pour out? No. Light pours in. So when we have that light, it dispels the darkness and it causes us to have peace. They're like little children. Like my, my son, the other night, I'm laying down and put him to bed, and, and uh, I like to, it's really bad, I like to mess with my kids so bad. And, I, and he's like, turn on the light. So I turn it off. And then he's like, open the door. So I shut it. And he's like, daddy, turn on the light. And I turn the light and he's, he's fine. He just rests in the light. There's peace for him. He's not afraid any longer. You know, the Bible talks about this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Why? If God is my light, he, he dispels the darkness. The light of Christ dispels the darkness. It shows the wickedness of our hearts and shows that He is victorious, though, over the darkness. See, the darkness can't can't creep in where there's light shining brightly. So the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So it gives us peace. Now, we've got the metaphor. Let's get the message. Let's get the message. Apply this message that God has for us. I want you to look at verse 14 for a moment. You are the light of the world. Does it say you will be? You were? You are. Present tense. Which means that this is a present reality. You don't become the light of the world. You are, by your relationship with Christ, a light right now. You are a light in your workplace. You are a light with your friends. You may not realize it, and your light might not be glowing brightly, but you are a light if you have trusted in Christ. That light can be dim, but you are a light. It is a present reality. A present reality. That's the first point that I want you to understand. It is a present reality. It is right now, not in the future, not in so many days from now or weeks or months. You are, if you claim Christ and you have trusted in Christ, you are a light. This is a present reality. Now, notice this. You are the light of the world. That's powerful. That's huge. See, this message is not just a present reality, but it is powerful in its immensity. Its immensity. This is an immense thing that God has caused you to be and do. It's immense. Powerful in its immensity. Now, how powerful? In three ways. The first of which is this it's global in scope. It's global. You're not just the light of your neighborhood. You're not just the light at your cubicle or in the conference room. You're not just the light in the classroom or at the locker or the locker room or the weight room or the gym. You are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. Does that not weigh heavily on you? That weighs heavily on me. I mean,. I feel like God has his big things in line for us at Village Bible Church and that he wants us to help reach the entire world. Not just our neighborhood, but the world. To shine our light brightly. I know it seems small, but we seem small comparison. But God likes to do things and things that don't really seem up to the task. We got a big God. He takes a little that we have and are and makes us much to do great big things. He used twelve men to change the world, twelve uneducated, ordinary men to change the world and it 's still changing to this day, and that message is spilling out to the farthest recesses of the the, the globe. It is global in its scope, the light of the world you know it 's interesting the phrase "City on a hill" because God says uh, put us." It's like a city on a hill to be seen. It entered into the American lexicon through the Puritan John Winthrop in his 1630 sermon entitled, A Model of Christian Charity, which was delivered on board the Arabella on its way to the New World. He preached it to the future Massachusetts Bay colonists while they were still on board the ship. And though Winthrop was the first, he was not the last, for it was picked up by President-elect Kennedy, he referred to the, this, the country, the U.S., as a city on a hill, and made even more famous by Reagan, Reagan when he used it on three different occasions. Now, I understand that they were saying and trying to promote uh, nationalism and patriotism, but they're taking it out of context. It's not that this the United States is a city on the hill, it's that we, as believers in Christ, are cities on a hill. So that people might look and have hope and be guided. When they see us. So it's not only global in scope, but it's a guide to salvation. A guide to salvation. Look at the verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. By people looking at you, they get perspective on where they are. I saw a special on the Blue Angels. Ever heard of the Blue Angels? Okay, blue angels are fascinating. These guys are the the naval pilots that do all of these crazy stunts and fly in formation And they they showed these guys and what they went through and the question that came up was How do you guys find out where you are when you're flying around like that? How do you remember where the ground is? I mean these guys have body suits on and with G, the way that they're the pressure that they're feeling They have to control their breathing the entire time so they don't pass out and your body is, is kept in check so that even f- their blood flows a certain way, because if not, they'll, they'll crash and die. And when they're flying around in the air, they have to be conscious of so many different things. matter of fact, one of the guys is even singing throughout the thing, so the other guys can hear him, and they know when the movement are happening through him singing. But they asked them the question, how do you find yourself in, so you don't get lost as you're flying up in the air? They said, we keep looking back, and there's one man standing on the ground with one little small thing, and it's a mirror. Small little thing, and they're seeing where that light's reflected at all times. It's just that small little mirror. And with that small little mirror, they find out where they're at. See, we're those small little mirrors that when we shine in the light of Christ, we're reflecting to other people and give them perspective. No matter all the craziness that's going on in the world, it gives us a picture where they are. Pretty cool picture, huh? Pretty cool picture. So we see that we, people get perspective. It is a guide to salvation because they see where God is and what it means to be saved, so that people might glorify God the Father, that they might be overwhelmed, and they might see who Jesus is in and through us. So we act as guides of salvation. As we've said so many different times, you, and you, and you, and you, you're the only Bibles that some people ever read. What are they reading? What do they read when they look at your life? What do they see? Are you really being an accurate guide to salvation are you leading people astray I mean think about it I remember before the internet you actually had to read a thing called a map when you were lost right now you have you have what you have GPS now have you ever had your GPS go wrong yeah when you end up this is not home this is a lake (laughs) all right now what, that GPS is supposed to be accurate, right? What happens when it's not operating correctly? What happens with you when you continue in sin? Are people seeing in Jesus in you? Are you leading people to salvation or leading them astray when they look at your life? It's a question we almost ask ourselves. So we need to understand that we are a guide to salvation. Not only that, another reason why this message is vitally important is that it brings glory to the Father. Glory to the Father. In the same way, in verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, when others see Christ in you, they are drawn or repelled by it. And God will receive glory either way, but when we... When we live in the way God desires us to live, God receives great praise and glory and honor, and his name is magnified, and then we experience the joy of God because we are doing what God has made us to do. you ever done something at the Have you ever got to the end of a day and you think this day was worthless or it was, it was great? And you, you might ask yourself, why? I feel good when I get a lot of work done. You ever felt that? You got done with the day and you're like, I feel good. I accomplished something. I, I did what I was supposed to set out to do and there's this relief and peace and uh, just this presence about yourself that you're like, you're happy. You're rested knowing that you did something that needed to be done. You feel like you accomplished something. See, the same is true with us when we're living the way that God wants us to do, wants us to be. That at the end of the day we stop and we go, oh, I fulfilled the purpose God had for me and you feel joy, not guilt, not regret, joy that comes with doing what God has made us and desires us to do. Now, I want us to understand something. This message is our personal responsibility. Our personal responsibility. Look at verse 16 again. Let your light shine. Now, it's interesting in Greek, this is an aorist imperative. It's a command. Undefined command on that it's to happen not at one moment in time in the past or in the future, now. So we're to let our light shine. In other words, this is a command. It's a mandate. And we must make sure that we are fulfilling this mandate that God has for us. That's number three in your notes. Fulfill fulfilling our mandate. We to get this message out there and really leave a light on for people so that they can see who Christ is, we have to fulfill this mandate, this command, which means we need to do everything in our power to make sure that this gets fulfilled. Everything else gets put on the back burner. Our hobbies, our habits, all of these other responsibilities go on the back burner to fulfill the command of God, that God has for us. Now how do we fulfill this mandate? First of all, it requires refusing to hide our light. Refusing to hide our light. Now, we can hide our light. How do we do that? Several ways. We hide our light when we're quiet, when we should be speaking. We hide our light when we go along with the crowd, and we don't stand for what is right. We hide our light when we fail in talking to others about Jesus. We hide our light when we ignore the needs of others. But I think the main reason we hide our light is simply fear we 're afraid of what others may think we 're afraid of persecution we 're afraid of retribution or what they 're going to do to us. You know, I saw this illustrated in a pretty powerful way this past week. Uh, I was reading my my uh, seven year old daughter a bedtime story, I'm reading peter pan it 's an abridged version of peter Pan, and we 're reading Peter Pan, and there 's a part where Peter has the the uh, the kids, the children, and they 're flying in the sky and never never land and it 's completely dark pitch black except for tinkerbell tinkerbell is very bright and and they're worried because they see that Tink is is completely bright and everyone sees it and they know that if captain hook sees it he's going to fire this cannon called old tom and possibly kill the kids and so they're worried as they're flying through the air they're saying stop her stop her the kids don't know what to do they're like tell her to turn it off and peter's like she can't turn it off she's a fairy and they says, well, when does it go off? When she goes to sleep. Cause her to go to sleep. Well, She can't sleep unless she's tired. Then hide her. So they, one of the kids has a stovetop hat and puts her tank in the hat so that Hook can't see her. See, many of us are afraid of being shot at by our coworkers, by our friends, by our neighbors. So we hide it away. Because, see, we can't turn it off. We can't turn off the light. We can dim it, but we can't turn it off always there. But we can try to hide it away because we are afraid what others might think of us. Don't hide your light. Refuse to hide your light. Secondly, remove any hindrances to your light. Remove any hindrances to your light. How do we, we hinder, hinder our light? When you put things around it so it can't see. That's what Jesus says. They don't put, light a lamp and then put a bowl over it. But see, when we, we do that, when we sin. What are the sins that you're holding on to that are causing other people to be hindered so they see your sin and not the Savior? What sins do you need to remove? I'm not just talking about the obvious sins. I'm talking about the, the ones that you know in the depth of your heart. What websites have you been going to? What books and magazines have you been reading? Where have you been spending your money? What shows are you watching? What movies are you putting before you? What are you doing when no one's looking? For those that are are single, what are you doing when you're with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, when you're alone and no one's around? For those that are married, what are you doing when you're away from your spouse at work or at school or whatever it is? You've got to remove those hindrances. You've got to confess your sin, get it out in the open, and then repent of it. Turn away from it. Because if you don't, it's going to come out. And then the name of Christ is going to be blasphemed because of your disobedience. Remove any hindrances to your light. Not just remove any hindrances, there's more. Make sure that you are reaching out for those bound for hell. Why does salt and light exist? For others. We are called salt and light so that others might benefit from our relationship with Christ. It's others-focused, others-centered, not just our personal comfort but it's for the sake of other people that they might be saved. We are light so that they might see what darkness is and see the Savior. We are salt that we might purify and preserve the culture around us. That other peoples might see Jesus in us these are people that are bound for hell and we don't laugh at them we don't condemn them we plead with them to be reconciled to god as the scripture says that we are ambassadors to god and christ through us is pleading for them to be reconciled to god while there's still time this is a serious reason that god has placed us as salt and light so that other people might be saved people are going to hell it's a real place it is not a metaphor It is a real, literal place. I don't know how it exists in the plane of spirituality, but it does. And you don't want to go there. Satan is not in charge of hell. It's not a fun place. There's no pleasure. People think that Satan is in charge of hell. No, it was created to house him where he would be imprisoned. He's an inmate, not the warden. And it's a place removed from comfort and from pleasure and it will be filled with regret and people will be tortured with the knowledge that they rejected God's Savior and chose their sin and they will look back and see how stupid they were. We need to reach out for those bound for hell by speaking the truth of Christ in love. Next, next we must make sure that we are rescuing the hurting. In the Bible we read that we are to be taking care of the widow, the orphans, the poor and the disenfranchised. According to Matthew chapter 25, we're to be clothing the, the naked. We're to be giving food and drink to those that are thirsty and hungry. We're to be reaching out to those that are the lowest and re- that are hurting and that are that are struggling. So we must make sure that we are reaching out to those that are hurting. That's another way that we let our light shine and we fill this mandate that God has for us. So reaching out for those bound for hell and making sure that we are rescuing the hurting. And then lastly, we must make sure that we, we are relying on the Lord of the harvest. Relying on the Lord of the harvest. So we can't do this by ourselves. While we are salt and light, we need the Lord to guide us and Him to bring other men and women and raise them up to be disciples of others so that we can let their light shine as well. We, God is blessing our church. We're seeing and hearing stories of, of people coming and, and, and experiencing tremendous heart and life change and forsaking sin and growing in righteousness. And, 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 and it's because people are praying, number one. And we're trying to honor God with all of our, our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. But we need leaders to rise up to help disciple these people that God are bringing in to us. To be more like Jesus. And, and that only happens when, when Jesus, who is the Lord of the harvest, raises up workers. As it says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 through 38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. If we're to fulfill this mandate, we need people that are discipling people. Are you discipling someone? Are you being discipled? Let me ask you that question. See, Paul was discipled a lot by Barnabas. The great apostle Paul was discipled by Barnabas, and then he turned disciple Timothy. I don't care how old you are. You need someone speaking truth in you to help you grow to be like Jesus. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We can't do it on our own. We need one another to be growing, to, to build these relationships, whether it's in our small groups, whether it's in uh, worship services or, or home groups or whatever it may be, we need to be discipled by someone else because it's dark out there. I don't know about you, one of the most depressing things about me in the month of November is the fact that it gets dark at like 4.30. I hate that. And it just feels so dark, and, and the weight can just come on you so strongly. And it can be very, very depressing. And in our world, it's a dark place, and it's darker than that. But you know what? The darker it is, the brighter the light shines. We had a, um, a power outage outage uh, a couple springs ago, and we have it out in our front driveway. We have a gas lamp, gas lamp, lamp that shines and it was funny, the whole block was completely dark because the power had gone out. But this is gas, so it stays lit. And you see the ComEd trucks drive by, stop, and go in reverse and stare at our house, trying to figure out how that was on. And it's because we, and, and it, 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 he, they noticed it because it shined brightly in the midst of the darkness. And so too are we to shine brightly in the midst of the dark place. It's dark around us, but God has caused you to be a light in in your workplace. And I bet your workplace is dark, or your school is dark, or the gym is dark, or the club that you go to is dark, or whatever it might be. But God expects you to light up that place. And you know, it's interesting. I love what Teddy Roosevelt said. He said, The darker the night, the bolder the lion. The darker the night, the bolder the lion. See, we need to be bold. The night is dark around us, but we need to be burning brightly for the kingdom of God. See, Satan likes to be bold. He's compared to a lion, and so is Jesus, interesting enough. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, but Jesus is known as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Satan's always trying to copy Jesus. I mean, you have he's the Christ. What does Satan want to be? The anti-Christ. He's always copying him because he's an angel of light. He tries to be an angel of light. See, he even tries to manufacture light. You know, manufactured light is nowhere near as good as the real thing. I don't know if you saw this a a while back, but in London, I want to say it was last winter, maybe two winters ago, that they tried to recreate the sun out in the middle of the public square. They had all these light bulbs. This artist had made all those light bulbs, and it burned brightly, and people were out there laying with, you know, sun lamps and tans in the chairs, trying to get tans from this thing, and it burned brightly. But you know what? It's not the sun. It's manufactured light. It's nowhere near as powerful as the real thing. You can't manufacture that kind of... I mean, the truth of Christ and the light of who He is can't be manufactured. It can only come from an authentic, real relationship with Him, of repenting of our sins and trusting in in Him. And when we trust in Him, He lights us. And then we are that light left on for other people so that they might come home to Christ. And be recipients of His salvation. Maybe you're here today and you've been walking in darkness. Maybe you've turned your back on God. God is giving you the invitation to trust in His Son who died on the cross for your sins and mine. He took your sins and mine upon Himself so that you might be saved. And all the Scripture says, For God so loved the world that whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's no other name given given to men under heaven by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus. And it is through him that we have life, eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Have you placed your faith in Christ? Have you turned to him who is the light? Stepped out of darkness into his marvelous light because he will forgive you of his sins, forgive you of your sins, and give you life with him forevermore. Call on him. The scripture is clear. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved call on him, and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, we know that you have called us to be salt and light in the midst of a dark place. Lord, help us to burn brightly, to not hide our light or hinder it, but to live as mirrors reflecting your glory, just as the Man holds a little mirror and gives direction to these great big massive million dollar planes that seem to be out of control, flying all around. Lord, may we, by the authenticity authenticity and the reality of our life, stay in line with you so we might be a reflection to other people that they might see Jesus in us. May we truly be those lights left on for you until you come again, that people might see Jesus in us and they might have salvation. Lord, forgive us of our sins. We know how sinful we are. We know how much we've failed, how much we've blown it, how much we love our sin. But Lord, help us to repent of it and turn to you to confess our sins because we we know and claim the promise in your word that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we know that once we are in you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that we've been saved, that we've been made lights. Lord, help us to turn that light up as brightly as it possibly can, that your name might receive glory and we might increase in joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.